Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church family. And excited to get to be here with you. If you're a guest, my name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff, your teaching pastor, and excited to be in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, before we get there, though, let me just celebrate one more thing with you. Um, we, this marks, this year marks 10 years of uh, faithful ministry uh, for us. That was pretty good. I was going to literally make them take it down and then put it back up if you didn't, you know, cheer. And so, uh, so we do have uh, a bit of a 10-year celebration uh, that is coming that we want to do. We, we do this every year. Uh, we do a series called A Story-Formed Service. And so I'll teach a little bit out of Nehemiah because that's the book that we're in. But we also, like, while you'll get to hear the gospel from the presentation right, in this way of the gospel, we also find it necessary that you just see men and women on stage that have been impacted by that gospel. And so we've invited some of the OGs, some of the original seven that helped start Heights to come. We have uh, some people that have been here for multiple years, some people that have just been in the last year and have come to faith um, are going to be up here. And so we're going to invite them up on stage, and they're just going to share stories of God's faithfulness uh, over you. And so that's, what, that's how we're going to kind of worship that Sunday. That's how we're going to experience the gospel in that way. I'll get us all set up for it. I'll close us out. Um, but ultimately, we just want you to hear of God's faithfulness, uh, 10 years of faithful gospel ministry that God has allowed, and we want to take some time uh, and celebrate that. So I'll have some fun things for you uh, that day as well. But we just want to keep that in mind, kind of put that on the schedule, and be praying. Uh, be praying. And also then I would say even if you have stories um, that you want to share, uh, even if we can't share them all that day, I want to encourage you, if you're in a missional community, share those stories with your MC leader so they can let us know and we can kind of just bring you up throughout the year even or record it. There's a ton of different ways, man, that you can also share how God has been faithful uh, in your life. Sound good? Cool. We're currently uh, in the book of uh, Nehemiah, and so I'm excited uh, to get into this book. Also uh, excited that we had an incredible marriage retreat this weekend. Some of you all went. Uh, show of hands, just in the room. How many of you went? Don't be too Baptist. Raise your hand. There you go. Just show of hands. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Okay, good. That's exciting. You guys have a good, did a good job? You fun? Yeah. The lands are in the room, so don't lie. They do a pretty good job. Yeah, they did a good job. Yeah, you guys literally met... Now that I'm looking at you, I used to use an illustration, and I'm kind of second-guessing that because you weren't here in the first service, but I'm probably still going to use it in this service, too. You all met um, all of our expectations. It was a total win, man. Knocked it out of the park. Uh, Jonathan, uh, Shelby, seriously, everything I asked you to do, uh, you did. You guys, I didn't get to introduce Jonathan at the marriage retreat. Uh, had I been able to do that, I would have said, man, he's a, a good brother, uh, but even more so than that, uh, he's a very good friend. I have a lot of brothers I don't have a lot of friends, and he occupies both those in my world. And so I am, as you have said of me, I am a much better pastor for you uh, because of the wisdom and truth that this man speaks into my life on all of the random phone calls <laughs> that I give him while he's trying to get his girls out the door on a school day. And so thank you for loving me, family. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for speaking into Nehemiah. 
uh, as well. And so excited to get into the book with you. Uh, we are, if you're a guest, in the book of uh, Nehemiah. We don't do anything um, real trendy here or cool. We just preach straight through books uh, of the Bible. So if that's something that you're into, it's a great place for you. Uh, Nehemiah uh, has heard that the wall of Jerusalem uh, has been broken down. Uh, Nehemiah has fasted, uh, he's prayed, uh, he's wept, he's worshiped. I think I could argue that he's done all of those things as an act of worship. Uh, Nehemiah has sought the face of God before he sought the hand of God. He's reached out into the Lord and he's been patiently waiting. And Nehemiah, as we've seen, has been clinging to the promises of God. He's quoting scripture. He's recalling what God said to Moses. Literally in chapter one, he's like, you've said this of Moses. You've modeled this to Moses. Do it again. Like he's just kind of clinging to the promises that have already been fulfilled by God, just hoping that God is going to do it again. In his patient prayerful uh, planning, now he finally has an opportunity to say to the king kind of what's happening. If you remember uh, from last week, the king looks at him, he's like, why does your face look like that? You know, if you kind of remember that, that's the way that I read it anyway. And he's like, why do you look like that? And uh, he clearly recognizes that Nehemiah is sad. And he says, oh, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. And so then the king kind of steps down in some proverbial ways and takes off his throne, comes off his um, yeah, comes off his crown, takes off his crown, and he says, hey, how can I serve you? What are you requesting? Which is a beautiful picture of the gospel for us, as we saw last week. And Nehemiah then lays out, he says, hey, why wouldn't I be sad? Man, my, the land of my fathers is in ruin. They're under siege. Everything that they've worked for is being hindered right now in this moment. Why wouldn't I be sad? And he says, the king does say, what are you requesting? What do you need? And Nehemiah's like, oh, you're not going to kill me? Great, I'll take some leave. Uh, I'll take a few merry men to kind of support me. If I could get some letters for these governors so they don't off me on my way through the country, that would be great. And I would like a side of forest. I just need a really big forest to rebuild all these. The king grants him uh, what he is asking for and what he is desiring. The reality is this, church family. Uh, if you want to discern the desires that you have from the world uh, and from God, you just simply have to ask the question, where do your desires lead you to? Uh, do your desires land you in Christ in closer proximity to Jesus with a greater awareness of God the Father? Or do your desires simply lead you into a better understanding of self, self-exaltation, perhaps self-preservation, perhaps? Where, does your, where do your desires lead you to? Because the desires of God will simply always point you. They're always going to land you in Christ. This is how you can discern. Big idea for today is this. God's desires always point to Jesus. No one else. Nothing else. Cat's out the bag. He's going to always point you to his son. Amen? Three points by which we hope to get there today. Three points. God gives desires. I see that. We've seen that in Nehemiah. Uh, God gives protection. It doesn't always look the way we think. It doesn't always feel like it here. And then ultimately, God will give provision. One way or another, he will provide through his son. For those that are looking online, thanks for tuning in online. Uh, God gives desires, point number one. Somebody say number one. God gives desires. God gives desires. Nehemiah 2, I'll do like 9 and 10. Looks pretty good. God gives desires, Nehemiah 2, 9 and 10. If you're ready, say ready. ready. Let's hit it. Here we go. He said this, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter that the king had given to him. Uh, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant heard this, listen, it displeased them greatly that someone had come 
to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so uh, Nehemiah shows up here, right? He's got a few of the king's men. He's got some officers uh, in the army, from the army. Think about this. Nehemiah is like kind of a a political official. He's a cupbearer to the king. If you missed that portion of the sermon, that means he was literally meant to taste the wine before it got to the king to see if it was poisonous or not, right? Some of you are like, worth it. Some of you are like, I don't know about good is that wine. Let's get down and talk about it. This is what Nehemiah's kind of role is. He's a trusted official to the king. If Nehemiah now, if he just shows up and he's like, hey guys, I got a letter from the king, but he doesn't have the king's horsemen. He doesn't have an army to help him out. They're gonna look at him like, what, did you get that off Amazon? Where'd you get this letter from the king? You just print that, it's got written in crayon. What is this thing? And they're gonna kill him. They're gonna smoke him right there on the spot. But he shows up as a political official with some of the king's men, some of the king's army. He has letters from the king. The scene makes sense. And if this is a scene, now if this is a movie, I think that the score of the film is beginning to change a little bit. There's these dark, kind of ominous fellows that are entering into the story. The antagonist of the film are watching, right? If you're watching this as a movie, you're on the edge of your seat and you're like, don't go in that shed. There's Crazy shots, the worst place you could possibly go, right? You're gonna die. There's these fellows that are kind of sneaking in. The music is changing a little bit. Sand Ballad and Tobiah are introduced to us. These kind of shady looking cats show up on the scene and they are displeased. Uh, they're displeased that someone has a desire given to them to help strengthen or to help renew the people of God. And I just wanna camp out here for you this morning. Whenever God gives you a desire, it will most often, always, I think I can say, when God gives you a desire, it will most often, always be met with opposition. That's one of the ways you know that it's from the Lord. Is this desire from God or is it desire from me? That's one of the ways you know is it will be met with opposition. In this scene, this physical opposition is most certainly accompanied by spiritual opposition. Right? The two men show up on the scene, but there's an enemy that exists behind their enemy. It's not just them that are shown. There's this enemy that's cowardly lurking in the shadows as well in the midst of what is happening here. Anytime God gives you a desire, it's always gonna be met with some form of opposition. Let me just illustrate it like this. Uh, how many of you sign up for the marriage retreat again? Good, show of hands. All right, let's see if we can get as many hands that come up again. Uh, how many of you began to argue more uh, after you registered for the marriage retreat? I'm a bunch of liars in here. Y'all better abstain from communion today, you hear me? Or confess on your way, for sure. Dude, I'm talking the day of, Andrew and I are fighting. I'm walking in the snow, Jonathan needs an ironing board. I'm on my way, like, you're entitled, heart. I'm just walking out, carrying an iron, an iron board in the snow, fighting. On the way, we fought all week. We signed up for a marriage retreat. It's supposed to be intimate allies, and we're like intrinsic warriors. I don't know what we are. We're against one another in that moment, right? You think about maybe something else, like this is kind of the beginning of the new year. You think about uh, how many people said that uh, they were going to start a new Bible reading plan. I just felt led. Oh, Lord knows. I just felt led, you know? <laughs> Bible recap. Give me some. And, and what happens though? Opposition hits. Kids are a little bit more unruly. More excuses start to come. We're just too busy. There's an enemy behind your enemy. Uh, the desire is good, and sometimes the opposition proves it. And so in that, whenever you think about it, like God's not out to punish you. He punished Jesus for you. Like, and you don't have to walk around like pessimistic, like, oh, just waiting on the other shooter. The shoe dropped on Christ when he went to the cross. And so there's not a judgment that is coming. You live in a fallen, foul, sinful, disgusting, difficult world. 
And so there's always going to be some form of opposition that comes against you whenever God places a desire in your soul. Expect the opposition. I would even say um, embrace the opposition. Allow it to come. For whenever there is opposition comes, mashed with a godly desire, it puts you in a greater dependency on Christ. And so now you have this desire given to you. You have this opposition, man, and you get to go, do I truly believe like, this is what God is calling me to. Or is it just something that I believe I'm calling myself to? Because if it's just made of man, if it's just the desire of man, it's going to fizzle out. Oh, but if God has called you to a church family, empowered you, emboldened you with the Holy Spirit, oh man, bring on the opposition, amen? Because it's gonna force us in the deeper dependency and position before Christ. Physical opposition will always be accompanied by spiritual Opposition, and that does not diminish the desires that God has given to you. God desires much for you. And one of the things you say, what is God's will? What is God's desire? Well, Thessalonians would say your sanctification, that you would actually look more like Christ. How do you look more like Christ today than you did yesterday? By facing that opposition empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the gospel in hand, with the word in hand. God's desires will always point you to Jesus Tell them to bring on the opposition. God desires renewal now. These men hate the idea of renewal. God desires his people to be strengthened. These men have come on the scene and they hate the idea of um, them being strengthened. They, God desires security and safety for the people of Israel. These men hate this reality. When we read the text, it said it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The reality is then that these men, they hate what Nehemiah is doing. But it's not just them who hate it. There's an enemy that's standing behind that enemy that wants to thwart the desires of God. Right? He hates the desires of God. And, and in that, we have to be able to keep pursuing and pushing in to that. This is the illustration I used in the first service that was much easier because second service, I didn't, I didn't expect to see your face. But as I was... So what the lands had said in the marriage retreat was, see what had happened was, okay... I duped his wife into doing this, is what I was told, which is really possible. And we're going to get to that maybe a little later in the sermon even. If you serve on a team, you're like, <laughs> show of hands, how many people did Cord dupe into serving on a team, you know? <laughs> but in the phone, they said, hey, I just need a little bit of encouragement. And I was like, oh, let me encourage you. And I'm going to tell you what, I didn't say anything different to them on the phone than I just said to you. As that anxiety has come into Miss Shelby's life, that's, let's call that a little bit of opposition. And when all I said on the phone was, hey, Praise God for that opposition because today you'll look a little bit more like Jesus than you did yesterday. And your faith will look a little bit greater, you'll look a little bit deeper, a little bit so on and so forth. Listen, as that opposition comes, keep us on track. As that opposition comes, know that it's not just that. There's an enemy that stands behind that enemy and his name is Satan. And he hates, what you, he hates when your desires align with Jesus. And he will do any and everything he can to try and thwart that plan. Sanballat and Tobias, they're the governing authorities. They hate the desires of God because they do not have the heart of God. They're not aligned with God. And so they're gonna continue to come up all throughout the narrative of Nehemiah to try to thwart the plans of God. But praise God for Jesus because he does give us protection. God gives protection, point number two for you, is this God gives protection. God gives protection, especially in the midst of opposition, but God gives protection. Protection. Verse 11 goes like this. I'm going to read quite a bit for you. So I, it's Nehemiah, I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. Verse 12. Uh, then I rose in the night, not in the cool of the day. I rose in the night uh, and a, a few men with me. 
And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem, so no one knows. Uh, There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. I'm really immature. Can we just stop here for a second? Like, where do they get the... I always like to talk about St. Jacob or like Mascuda, you know? It's like a couple good old boys were out there just scratching their belly buttons, drinking a curse, and they're like, what do we call it? Like, there's some poo. It's called the dunk gate, you know? And then it stuck. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Verse 14, then I went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass because it's all in shambles. Verse 15, uh, then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the official did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, listen, this is how I lead. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest uh, who were to do the work. Sorry, guys. Then I said to them, uh, you see the trouble we are in. Listen to me. You see the trouble that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, which means shame, perhaps a godly guilt or a godly grief. And I told them of the hand of my God, oh man, that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And it's just such a beautiful story. And so Nehemiah is here, okay, Uh, He's investigating, he's getting this plan. This is kind of his natural wiring. We've seen him take time, be patient, be methodical in the things that he's doing. He spent four months uh, praying before he had a conversation with that king. He waits on the right time. This is no different. He's just out there kind of doing some reconnaissance. He's taking some notes. He's kind of jotting down. He's forming a plan. Verse 11, Nehemiah said, I told no one of what God had put into my heart. But then in verse 18, he said, oh, I told them the hand of my God that was upon me for good. And so he goes from kind of being kind of dark, mysterious. He's taking notes, he's doing this thing. But as he's looking upon the state of Jerusalem, like he's looking upon the safety of the walls that were supposed to bring him protection, he, he swings into this, this kind of another, like, I don't know, maybe emotional state again where he's like, but now I can't even help but to tell him. Like, I gotta tell them about the good hand of God that's been placed upon me, the calling that's been given to me. I'm gonna invite them in to be a part of the work that God is doing. Let me tell them about the hand of God that is upon me. Let me submit to you this morning, church family. There is no greater place to be than in the safety of God's hands. Like, how do you, what does it mean to be in the hand of God? Oh, it means to be walking out the desires of God, to find safety in him. Some scriptures, Ezra 7, 28 says this, I took Courage for the what hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And this is Ezra as part of Nehemiah as they build out the temple, or had goes to preach the gospel after the temple's built. Ecclesiastes two twenty four. There's nothing better for a person. It's a bold statement. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. Amen. This also I saw is from where from the hand of God. Psalm 104, when you open your hand, they, the people of God, are filled with good things. Isaiah 64, 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the what? Work of your hand. Come on. Job 12, 9 through 10, in the midst of incredible opposition, has lost everything. Safety in shambles. Life in shambles. I mean, Walls are torn down all around him, aren't they? 
Who among all these do not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And in his hand is the life of every living thing and breath of all mankind. Psalm 145, 16. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Church, it is a good place to be in the hand of God, amen. How does he provide for me then, pastor? So what are the ways that I get to be in the hand? Where does provision and safety, how does that work? Where does, he, where does that come from? I think I would argue with you this morning that he gives you gates. He gives you walls, plural. Nehemiah is looking at a literal, physical wall, but also God gives us very literal, very physical gates and walls. And someone invites you just to consider this. Like, have you investigated the gate? <laughs> what is the state of your gate? You're like, that doesn't make sense, Corey. I get it. I'm getting you there. Think about a gate with me. What do they do? You know, they protect. Uh, they keep things in. They keep other things out. Your neighborhoods have gates, some of them, yeah? Uh, your yard, some of you have a what? You have a gate in your yard. Uh, when we went to the Blues game and watched them put a beating on the Oilers this last week, uh, there was a gate to get into the parking lot, and there was a gate to get into the arena. Then we got introduced to this really nice suite we got to go into. There was a lock on the door. There was, a, in sense, a gate that kept out people they did not want in. There are gates all around us, and gates are meant to protect, and gates are meant to keep out the enemy. At the same time, gates are, gates are meant to be open, because we're not called to be separatists, and so mission still must take place. And so we need people to come and go from within and from outside of our lives. And so Nehemiah expects a, inspects a literal gate, but I want to submit to you this morning that God has given you a plethora of gates for your protection. Now let's think about it like this. What do you think Sunday morning is? Is it just the opportunity to come and consume and kind of feel good about ourselves and, and it's enough to kind of fill us for the whole week? Or perhaps is there something much more deep happening here? As you're getting called to um, worship God in the beginning of the service, and as Jess leads you through a call to confession to say, hey, I don't know that I model prayer in a way that I should before my children. I don't know that I've set up that sort of a gate around my kids. As even right now, as I'm calling you to consider the state of your view of a Sunday morning, it's a bit of a gate for you. This is a place of safety that is for you to come in, to recall, to confess, to repent, to behold, to come near Christ. Not that he's only here, but this is a moment for that. It is an opportunity for you to come forward. It is a gate that the Lord has given. Now, this will not crumble. Perhaps heights will go away, and the Lord be blessed if it does. But the gathering of the saints cannot be crumbled. But the way you view it might be. How are you using it as a gate of protection for you and your family? Uh, when you think about your missional community, whether you like all the people in your MC or not, is not what I'm bringing into question. But how do you view it? Is it just a thing that you do on a Tuesday night at six o'clock where you kind of, the food is an afterthought and the conversation's an afterthought and you're not prepared for it as you go in to have gospel-centered conversation? Whenever you view it, like how do you view that time? Because I view it as a gate for me. The reality is like you need people around you. You need community around you. You need to see mission happening and people brought to faith. You need to see the good grace and mercy of God like on display in people's lives. Not only that, but you need someone next to you, man, men need men, women needing women to look at you and go, hey, your wall's a little jacked up, bro. Like you need a little bit more than some caulking to get that fixed. You're missing some boulders. You know what I'm saying? Like, did you even know 
that there should be a wall here, like a boundary here, a gate here, right? Maybe you're in an emotional affair at work because no one's coming and said, bro, you need to put a gate in place there. Perhaps still ridden with addiction because you haven't had someone say, you need a gate that has been put there for you. Like you're looking at the white of the eyes of the enemy. This is why you need community. You need people to come around and kind of call out your, everyone's awesome by themselves, okay? I'm the most awesome person in the world. Go ask my wife how awesome I was on the day of the marriage retreat. She went, not so awesome anymore, right? You need someone to go, hey, that dude's got a few rocks out of place. You need this missional community. Like the word of God will not crumble, but it is a safety, it's a gate that God has given to you to keep you in the clearing, understanding and foundation for the world and how to walk out life. Prayer is that gate. I would argue even this morning that parents, and you are a gate of safety for your children. In concert with the word and the, the spirit, you are being given to them as a gate of protection. Still tracking with the illustration here? Right? For husbands, you are a gate for your family to protect your family. You are a gate that the Lord, you're a gift of mercy and grace to your family, regardless of how you felt when you walked in here. Families together, individuals, but then also families together. Man, you are a gate for the church, a safety for the church. Healthy families, healthier church. And turns out, healthier church, healthier community. We as a people, oh man, we are a gate. As dysfunctional and messy as we are, we are a gate, church family, for the community. This is the way that God has designed it, man. Healthy families, healthy individuals, right, make up a healthy church. Healthy families make up a healthy church. Healthy church, healthy community. This is just a statistical reality for all of history. And even more speaking, as, as men go, so the families go. As family goes, so the church goes. And as the church goes, so also the culture goes. That's just a statistical reality for us. That's just history. We are gates. God has given us as a grace, and he's given us lots of other areas of grace, God, to keep us safe. God gives you gates for your protection. At verse 17, Nehemiah has looked at these walls, these literal gates for him, and they're broken. And he says this. He says, I just feel so like downtrodden about this today. You see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Then he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, that we may no longer suffer this shame, that we may no longer suffer kind of this, this godly guilt, this godly conscience that we have upon looking at the state and what can be potentially, what can be possible for the people of Israel as far as invasion goes. Let me ask you, what's the state of your gate? Kind of cheesy, but you'll, you'll remember it on Wednesday. What's the state of your gate? When you look at all the good gifts that God has given you to keep you safe, all the ways he's provided for you, while this is a literal gate, I'm just asking you to literally look at your gate that God has given you when it comes to the word and prayer, community, shoot, giving, tithing, serving, all the things that God has given you to keep you safe. I'm asking you to take a literal look at the wall. How does it look in all these different areas? Uh, one of the things Jonathan uh, encouraged us to think about this last weekend at the marriage retreat uh, was this, kind of one of the themes was own your story or it'll own you. And he took us to this reality of like, we just have to be really real with, with where we are as a couple specifically as a marriage retreat. But I would also extend to you today like the importance of owning your story or it'll own you. Like take a real honest look at your walk with Christ, especially if you're a professing believer. 
And if you're not, if you're just in the room and a skeptic and a non-believer, take a real look at your life, the things that you find value in or the things that give you identity, and just ask the question, like, what's the state of it? Is it doing what you're hoping it was going to do? Is it providing safety for you? And if not, why is it not doing it? Just own that today. That's the beauty of coming into this place is you can just be where you are, who you are. We're hopefully not going to leave you there. What is the reason that you're kind of pursuing family? What are you hoping to get out of it? Is it doing what it said it was going to do? Own your story or it'll own you. The reality is there's a ton of brokenness in the room. And there's all sides, all sorts of rocks that are out of place. My rocks were all messed up on the way to the marriage retreat. Needed to hear the gospel. Needed to be reminded of who I am. There is a shame that can come whenever you look at the state of the gate. I don't think that that's the shame that Nehemiah is talking about. I don't think it's a shame that like leaves you robbed of identity or purpose or value as someone who bears the image of God. I think that sort of a shame builds walls and I think it builds four walls around you and instead of giving you safety, it gives you something like solitary confinement. Like there's a shame that you can continue to swim in and soak in and allow to kind of run your life and give you identity and breathe that and breathe that over you. And what happens in that then, in that world, is you're hearing the voice of the enemy instead of the voice of God. And the desires of the enemy are kind of leading you further away. And there is no provision. There is no safety. But man, he's feeding it to you like it exists. And then all of a sudden you look up after maybe months or years and you're pushed away community and you pushed away the church and you pushed away the word of God and you stop going in prayer and you look up, I think, and I talked to someone the last couple of weeks that's doing this. You look up and all of a sudden you go, well, where's everybody at? And you're like, bro, you built a wall between us. You, you found yourself in a prison over here. That's what shame can do. I don't think that's the shame that Nehemiah feels. I think that there's like a, an unction that is in the shame that he feels, like a godly grief, a godly conviction, like the walls have come down. And he's being real about it. And he's saying, man, here's what's possible now that the walls are. People can invade. They can take siege. And it's also true in our lives. If we're not real about the state of the gate, we're just inviting the enemy in. Building rocks, building walls right alongside him, hand in hand. I'm gonna ask you again today, what is the state of your gate? When you, when you look at it, man, do you, do you have a godly grief or do you have a shame that wants to further imprison you? The beauty of the gospel is that God will provide for you and he already has provided for you in Christ Jesus. And so think about this last point here with me. God gives provision. God gives provision. And they said to Nehemiah, man, they cracked their knuckles and get the work. They say to Nehemiah, man, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands right, for the good work. Come on. But when Sanballat San the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, a servant of Geshem, the, sorry, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. Listen, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Uh, then I replied to him, oh man, the God of heaven will make us prosper and his servant, we his servants will arise and build for you have no portion and no right or claim in Jerusalem. Come on, somebody. Look, God gives this incredible desire to Nehemiah. Boom, opposition hits. Opposition immediately hits. God's given him all sorts of gates of safety, all sorts of things that Nehemiah has stood and modeled for us, been clinging to the word of God, going to prayer, putting strong men around him, kind of continuing to pursue the calling that God has, has given him. And yet now here he is, he stands up among these men and what do they do? It says that they jeer at him. What does that 
mean, old school word. It means that they began to mock him, that they began to make fun of him. They've been to call, what's this small little, what are you going to do? Look, you don't have a wall, you don't have soldiers, you don't have a, you barely have a temple, right? You got some crazy old man Ezra out there preaching the gospel. No one's coming, no one, you're completely surrounded by, they're just mocking him. And then whenever the mocking doesn't work, what do they do? They turn to intimidation. What are you trying to do? You're just trying to, you're trying to take over the king? And he's like, what are you, I mean, I would have been like, bro, I got the papers right here, you idiot. How, you not see him from, read the original documents as a politician. Why don't you try that? See how it goes. That's my heart and posture. What does Nehemiah say, though? Nehemiah does not, now later he's going to crack some heads. And I'm like, let's go. That's what I'm talking about. Let, I knew I was right at some point. But right here, as they're threatening him, as they're mocking him, what does he do, man? Glory to God is what he says. Dude, he looks that opposition in the face, finds his safety rooted in the word of God and in the promises of God. And he's like, the God of heaven will make us prosper. I don't care what you have to do. You're not gonna rob me of it. Taking your, what are you gonna take my identity away? <laughs> the God of heaven has called me to do this work. What are you, who are you? The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we and his, we his servants, oh, we will arise and build. Come on. But you have what? No portion, no right, no claim in God's town. He handled it way better than your pastor would have handled it. Right? Nehemiah stands in the midst of incredible opposition as they're coming, to get him, coming against him and remains faithful to him. Just remains faithful to the call. How do you remain faithful? How do you discern the desires that God has given you versus the desires of the world? I would say you have got to cling to the word of God. Like if we're gonna remain as pillars in our community, our foundation must be rooted in the word of God. Like the New Testament is full of illustrations. Here's one that I'll share. The New Testament is clear that there are two gates that are gonna be offered to you in this life. You know what I'm talking about? There are gonna be two gates that are gonna be offered to you in this life. Man, one of those gates is gonna be wide open. Dude, it's gonna look like the beautiful seas that surround Indonesia where some of our missionaries are gonna go. It's gonna look inviting. It's gonna be open. And at the end of the day, as you walk in towards the waters of that beauty, it's gonna be ridden with death and destruction, the Bible says. Oh, but there is another gate. It is narrow. It's not as sexy, right? It's a tight fit. There are gonna be some thorns. Let's call it opposition for the sake of the sermon. Oh, but it's gonna lead you to life eternal, right? There's two voices that are always gonna be coming at us. The vulture, the vulture. It is, well, you could say vulture. I just misspoke. <laughs> the vultures of the world, yeah, or the word of Christ. Like that's, that's what we have. And so we have to cling to the word of God. The beauty of the word of God is that it cannot be broken. It cannot be torn down. It has stood the test of time. And not only has it stood the test of time in a very physical, very real sense, man, but the word of God put on flesh, dwelt among us, walked among us. Do you wanna know what the desires of God is? What the desires of God are? Oh, you need only look at Jesus. All of the desires that God the Father have are rooted and found and clearly seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he comes and walks in perfection, something that we most certainly cannot do. He comes and fulfills all of the desires of God, which we cannot do. Why can't we do that, Pastor? Because it's not just our walls that are broken, church family. It's our hearts that are broken, like, it's not just a person issue, it's a sin issue. There's an enemy that stands behind your enemy. There's an enemy that's behind your addiction. There's an enemy that's behind your adultery. There's an enemy that's behind your, whatever you feel like is keeping you from the presence of God. There is an enemy, ominous, in the shadows over there, lurking, just fueling your life with that thing. 
There's an enemy that's behind your enemy. Oh, but the desires of God far outweigh the desires of the enemy. And he sends a son and he walks in perfection perfectly, keeping all of those desires. And what does he say whenever he comes here? John 10, he says what? In John 10 in the ESV, it says, I am the door. But in the NIV, some of you are like, finally, the NIV. He says, I am the, what do you think it says in the NIV? I'm the gate, baby. Let's go. Let's go. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, come on, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Oh, what does it mean to find pastures of sheep? Oh, to be fully in, I mean, to be fulfilling and setting in the desires of the good shepherd, to be under the safe haven haven and the safety of the shepherd. That's what it means to find pastures. Now the thief, the enemy, the ominous, the shadowy, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate, he could say. The good shepherd, how does he do it? Lays down his life for the sheep. The desires of those governors before Nehemiah were solely in and of themselves, but the desires of God in heaven as seen in Christ are that many would be redeemed. That he would send his son not just to walk in perfection as the perfect, but so that the son would fully meet all of the expectations of God, something we could never do, nor do we have to. What does it mean for Jesus to go to the cross? Let me word it like this. The gate, the perfect wall, whenever he goes to the cross, becomes completely shattered so that you and I could be rebuilt. That's the story of the gospel. The only one undeserving of the cross goes to the cross and is shattered. It's not just that Jesus died for sin. Yes and amen. There's another doctrine in there that says Jesus took all of the world's sin, all of the effects of sin into himself. And it wasn't something that just a caulking could fix. And even if it could, he stayed on the cross and he dies dead, torn down. Why? So we could be rebuilt up. Oh, and then he resurrects a new life, doesn't he? Happy Easter. Resurrects a new life, sends us the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? One, keeps us in relationship, keeps us built before the Father. So whenever I fail because of opposition, praise God, because the Holy Spirit is at work. Man, when I fail, I'm thankful for him. Right, I got rocks just falling out my torso over here. He's like, I got you, I got you, I got you, I got you. And man, whenever I find success because of the gospel, praise Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is at work. Praise Jesus. This is the, man, thank you, John. That's what I'm talking about. This gate, the paradox of the gospel family is that Jesus is willingly torn down so that we can be rebuilt. That is the beauty of the gospel. In every single way, Jesus fulfills this text, right? Jesus keeps God's desire, point one. God, Jesus most certainly is God's protection for us, point two. And dude, he is God's provision. Not, not just temporally, but forevermore. Anyone or anything that ever offers you a safety outside of Christ will crumble before you. Jesus is the only one that's gonna sustain us. And so as we go to communion, uh, today as a family, why don't you go ahead and raise, stand up with me. As we go to communion today, um, I just want you to think about communion not as a religious event, oh man, but as a redemptive event for us. Thanks, man. Uh, as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us in our place uh, as our substitute, the literal tearing down uh, that Jesus has done uh, for you and also uh, for me.
And so in a moment, whenever you come forward, right, you'll see the bread which, which represents Christ's body literally broken uh, for you in your place as your substitute. And you'll see the cup uh, which represents Christ's blood that was spilled in your place uh, as your substitute. And so I just like, I just wanna invite you here. And perhaps you are one of those skeptics or non-believers. Uh, welcome. This is a safe gate for you. Um, I pray it's a place ridden with grace and mercy as you're figuring out your story. And I believe the gospel story will speak to you. And so I just wanna give you an invitation this morning that if you're here and you're, you are a skeptic and you're a non-believer, I wanna give you an invitation to inspect that gate. Like whatever gives you identity or whatever you think is gonna last for you forever. And I just want you to seriously like ask the question like, is it, is it working? Whatever you're clinging to, is it actually providing safety? Is it actually providing an identity you think that'll last? Or is it just kind of crumbling before you? And perhaps if the answer is, hey, this just isn't working for me, man. Then let me give you the invitation just to invite Jesus into that thing. Like, it's not just that you have a wall issue. You have a heart issue, and you know it. Like sin affects all of us. Sin puts a wall between us and God and the only way that wall gets broken down is because Jesus was broken in your place. Like that's the God that we serve in this house. And so I wanna invite you just to invite him in to confess, to do something we call repent, which is just to look at Jesus and say, hey, I don't know everything about you, man, but I do believe that you can save me right here because these other saviors ain't working. They're crumbling. For those of you that are seasoned in the faith, perhaps, we also come in a little skeptical sometimes, don't we? ridden with it. Now, let me invite you just to invite the Spirit to come in and start doing a little bit of caulking, <laughs> a little bit of work on you. I'll invite him to come in man, and to, to just say, hey, these are areas of my life where I've exalted kids over you. I have exalted family over you. I've disregarded your word. I haven't spent time. You have given me all these areas of safety, and yet I have squandered them. I'm staring the enemy in the face, and I just feel ran over. Godly grief? No. Shame? Check. God, could you remove my shame and give me godly griefing? And you already have. Just remind me of what you've already done. And just do some business with it and check it out. You're not, just as Nehemiah, you're not asking God to fulfill any promise he hasn't already fulfilled for you in Christ. Just as Jonathan said, I've been waiting on this moment for you to ask me to get on the couch with you. Uh, in this prayer right now, the Father goes, I've been waiting on this moment. I'm just waiting on it. Got it, done. And then as you come forward, you get to take and eat and you get to feast and I do, I want you to picture just the Jesus crumbling before you, like full of joy though, <laughs> just ridden with joy in that moment. As you come and you take and you eat and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, man, take it and perhaps today by the power of God's spirit, it'll be like the first time you ever took communion. Pray God that continues to rebuild you and renew you in this moment. For those of you that are saints, this meal is for you and the table's open.